The reading is from Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 1 to 33 is what I'm reading, and that is found in page 688 of the Bibles that are in the seats. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and developed me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my path crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughing stock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seek him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear his yoke, bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Thank you, Rosalind. Let's pray again together. Dear Lord, as we come before you now, we simply pray with the psalmist. Open our eyes that we may see wondrous things in your word. Amen. Amen. Over the past three weeks, Archie, our friend from Brunsfield, has walked us through the book of the prophet Habakkuk under the general theme, Faith in the Mess. Mess being an apt description for the situation the Lord's people were in. Now, the title for this morning's sermon is The Lord is My Portion, but it could well have been called uh, Faith in an Even Bigger Mess. And we'll see that a few decades 
after Habakkuk's experience, things had not really got better for Judah, for the Lord's people. They had got worse. Habakkuk is a small book. Um, in my Bible, it takes up three pages out of over a thousand. And Lamentations, uh, the book that we're going to look at this morning, is likewise a small book, six pages out of a thousand. And it would perhaps be easy to pass these books by in favor of the larger, more familiar portions of Scripture. But to do so would be to massively undervalue them as part of the Word of God. Last week, I was down in Berwick-upon-Tweed uh, for work purposes, visiting an old printing firm. I work for a book publisher, and we were down there to, to look at this firm to see if uh, they could do some work for us. And as we were being shown around the printing works by one of the descendants of one of the original uh, Victorian owners, um, we passed the impressive banks of the big, noisy, uh, offset litho printing machines. And these things really interest me. Um, but then we stopped near a machine that produced uh, what I would call wiro-bound books. You know the sort of thing, those with pages held together with a, a spiral of metal. And there were, lying ready to be packed, some copies of a book uh, that had just been printed and bound. And our host mentioned that copies of this particular book sold for a very high price. And I logged the title in my mind um, because it was interesting. The title of this book was Passage Planning Guide, Great Barrier Reef and Torres Strait. And it was a guide for ship's pilots to safely navigate through this particular stretch of water. And later on, I looked up the price on the publisher's website, 325 pounds. And it wasn't even a large book. Um, but of course, it wasn't the paper and ink and the wiro binding uh, that shipping companies were willing to pay uh, that significant sum for. It was the content, the knowledge gained by experienced mariners and ocean mappers that could then be used by captains to chart a safe passage over the Great Barrier Reef and hopefully uh, protect the valuable cargo being carried. What looked like a fairly insignificant wiro-bound book was actually of great value uh, to those who could make use of its contents. How much more so with the Bible as a whole and those small books within it, uh, those books that as we flick over the pages, if we're still using paper Bibles, we can easily flip past. But these small books like Habakkuk, like Lamentations, contain ideas that are incredibly valuable to us and help us to chart a safe passage through the hazardous waters of life. In the course of uh, clearing out some papers a couple of days ago, I discovered that I'd actually previously spoken briefly on this passage in Lamentations before um, during a lockdown prayer meeting on Zoom. And it was surreal uh, reading over that material uh, that was prepared in a time when a gathering like this uh, was really out of the question. And I returned to the theme again last year in our community group, and I started a series of sessions uh, called Great Ideas in Scripture. As it happened, I only got as far as the first session, 
but it's the theme of that first session that I'm going to build on this morning, the Lord being our portion. Uh, the reason that I wanted to run those sessions in community group was that there are several grand themes in the Bible which God has revealed over the course of history, which have shaped the ways people have thought about him and in the way in which they have lived for him. Ideas which have formed what the 20th century Dutch theologian Herman Bavink would call the world and life view of the believer. These ideas help us to form in our minds uh, a big picture, if you like, to see the mighty forest when perhaps too often we see individual trees. Or perhaps think of it like this. Uh, when you paint a wall, if you've done that before, or a piece of furniture, uh, or in my case, most recently, the shelves in the foyer uh, that Dan and I made uh, last year, you don't uh, paint the chosen color straight onto the plaster uh, or onto the wood or onto whatever it is. The color is what you see in the end. Uh, but in order for the color to be seen in its full vibrancy, um, you need to put down a base coat. You need to follow those instructions on the paint tin. If you don't do that, the color will appear duller than it ought to appear. It won't be seen as the paint manufacturer intended it to be seen. In the end, you do not see the base coat, but its presence enables the top coat to be seen more vibrantly. And it's the spiritual base coat uh, that I'm interested in building up this morning. There are some grand themes, some great ideas in scripture, which are like a spiritual base coat. They're there in the background of our consciousness and enable us, as we seek to live lives honoring to God, to see things more vibrantly, to see things how they're intended to be seen by God, to possess a world and life view that reflects the reality of the existence of a creator God who can be known by us. Habakkuk, as you will recall from last week, concluded with this statement. The Lord is my strength. And so much of our spiritual stability, our confidence, our steadfastness, is related to how we, in our own hearts and minds, complete this sentence. The Lord is dot, dot, dot. For Habakkuk, the Lord was his strength. For the author of the passage read by Rosalind just a few moments ago, the Lord was his portion. And this is one of the great themes of scripture on which I want to dwell this morning. As Archie showed to us during the course of Habakkuk's prophecy to Judah, Habakkuk asked some difficult questions. And the answers he receives from the Lord and which he writes down as a permanent record of God's character leads to a changed perspective on his part over the course of the book. Even in the midst of Judah's woes, caused largely by the nation's sinful rebellion against God, Habakkuk recognizes God's wisdom and perfect justice. The complete execution of that justice lay in the far future, but even in the mess, Habakkuk could rejoice in the Lord as his strength. Fast forward a few decades to 587 BC, and Judah, the Lord's people, is still in a mess. In fact, things have got messier, which we'll come to shortly. 
Lamentations, as we've said, is a short book with a strange name and perhaps not a book we turn to very often. And yet here it is, sits in the middle of the scriptures, a book of tears, of distress, but also of faith, perseverance and hope on the part of its author. Now, historically, uh, that author has been assumed to be the prophet Jeremiah. The book comes after that massive uh, prophecy of Jeremiah. Although the book of Lamentations itself doesn't include mention of its author's identity. Perhaps Jeremiah was the author, but whoever it is, they have maybe deliberately concealed their identity. And we can therefore learn from the experience and message of the poet of Lamentations and apply it to ourselves without getting too caught up in the personality of the author. We know this much though, that the book covers events that happened in 587 BC, the aftermath of the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonian empire. The Babylonians were the Chaldeans whom Habakkuk prophesied would come and take over the land. The author's time and space may seem very alien to us, but Lamentations is a book written by a real person responding to very real events. It's a book about the death of a city, the city of Jerusalem. And uh, in the early days of the current European conflict, we heard of elderly residents of cities refusing to leave, even under the threat of imminent attack. It's difficult for most of us to imagine what it's like to see your own city, your home, your place attacked, ruined and made uninhabitable. There are many other places in the world at this moment affected by war and many people who have had to witness their cities and villages laid waste. Our friend Prakash just recently returned to India has shared with some of us the plight of Christians in that country who have had to flee their villages due to being attacked. Some therefore are perhaps better able to understand the depth of anguish uh, which this Hebrew poet expresses. And yet Jerusalem wasn't just a city. It wasn't just a home. For the people of Judah, it was the center of their world. It was a symbol of their place as God's covenant nation. Zion, as they affectionately referred to it, the city on a hill. It was a place that they looked to for comfort. It was a happy place. I'm English, um, but one of the things I early came to appreciate, even before I arrived in Scotland, um, about the historic church tradition was the uh, prominence given to the Psalms in worship. And the Scottish Psalter's rendering of Psalm 122 captures well these feelings towards Jerusalem as the ancient people of God would go up to festivals and feasts. They'd sing on their journey, I joyed when to the house of God go up, they said to me, Jerusalem, within thy gates our feet shall standing be. Pray that Jerusalem may have peace and felicity. Let them that love thee and thy peace have still prosperity. But now the city had no peace. Jerusalem wasn't just any old city. Its peace and prosperity were the nation's peace and prosperity, its ruin was the nation's ruin. And so 
The author of Lamentations responds to the invasion and destruction of this sacred city caused, as the scripture shows, by the continued unfaithfulness of God's people to the covenant which he had made with them. And yet, our author is not without hope. And the verses that I would like us to focus our attention on this morning, verses 22 to 24 in chapter 3, are really the key verses of the book. They are the heart of the book, and they signify a turning point in the thoughts and tone of the author. I said that the author expresses enormous sorrow at what has befallen Jerusalem, his city, and its people. But it's worth us noting that sorrow does not extend into despair. I was recently rereading the late Timothy Keller's book called Counterfeit Gods, which I first read not long after it came out when I was at university. And in that book, Keller observes that there is a difference between sorrow and despair. Sorrow, he says, is pain for which there are sources of consolation. Despair, however, is inconsolable because it comes from losing an ultimate thing. When you lose the ultimate source of your meaning or hope, there are no alternative sources to turn to. It breaks your spirit. One of the things I hope we'll see this morning is that the people of God in any age do not need to despair. And that's because there is a source of consolation. And it's this, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. And it's this notion of the Lord being our portion that I want us to think about. So firstly, what do we mean by having God as our portion? When we think of the word portion today, we tend to think of a food, of chips. The application of words evolves over time. And the application of this word, in our culture at least, has narrowed to be used mainly to describe amounts of food. But in the past, it was used more widely uh, to describe a sense of someone's lot in life, or, or destiny even. And that's more the flavor of the word as it's being used here. The word, uh, as it's used in scripture, is also about division. And the author, uh, when he says, the Lord is my portion, he's thinking and, and he's wanting his readers to cast their minds back to the division of the land of Canaan, nearly a thousand years previously and it's being allotted to the tribes of Israel. There was one tribe, uh, you may well remember, um, that did not receive any land, that was the, the, the Levites, and they served as priests. And to Aaron the priest, the Lord had said, I am your portion and your inheritance. This portion allotted to the tribe of the Levites was to serve as an ongoing picture. The priests had no land inheritance of their own, but they were sustained by the portion of the offerings made in the sanctuary by the other tribes. This image 
of priests relying on the provision of God rather than owning their own land became a metaphor for a God-centered life, a life which was able to survive in times of difficulty or crisis. And it's a metaphor which comes up several times in scripture and in the Psalms in particular. Psalm 16 verse five, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup, you hold my lot. Psalm 73 verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 142 verse five, I cry to you, O Lord, I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. So when we read or hear the word portion in the Bible, we should think of it as referring to the idea of a life lived with God at the center, with the implication that this is the route to everlasting satisfaction. Thomas Brooks, the 17th century English preacher, minister, wrote an entire book on what it is to have God as your portion. He was so captivated by that theme. And among many other things, he made this comment. As it is not the great cage that makes the birds sing, so it is not the great estate, that is the great worldly possessions, that makes the happy life. All true comfort and happiness is only to be found in having an all-sufficient God for your portion. And he then quotes Psalm 144. Happy is that people whose God is the Lord. He continues, and therefore, as ever you would be, a ha be happy in both worlds, referring to, to this world and to the eternal world to come, it very highly concerns you to get an interest in God and to be restless in your own souls till you come to enjoy God as your portion. It's like what St. Augustine writes on the very first page of his confessions. Our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. John Calvin, the 16th century reformer and preacher in Geneva, I've been rereading uh, some of his stuff over the last few weeks, my own spiritual uh, stimulation. He has this to say about it. We cannot stand firm in adversities except we be content with God alone and his favor. For as soon as we depart from him, any adversity that may happen to us will cause our faith to fail. It is, then the only true, it is then the only true foundation of patience and hope to trust in God alone. And this is the case when we are persuaded that his favor is sufficient for our perfect safety. But there is in the words an implied contrast for most people seek their happiness apart from God. All desire to be happy, but as people's thoughts wander here and there, there is nothing more difficult than so to fix all our hopes in God so as to disregard all other things. And let's be honest, there are plenty of other things which compete in our minds to fulfill that desire to be happy. Keller analyzes many of them in that book I mentioned, Counterfeit Gods, money, relationships, power, success. These are not necessarily bad things in themselves, but what happens if we consider these things to be our portion that in which we invest 
all our hopes, all our dreams, all our aspirations? What if these things become our ultimate thing? Matthew Henry, the 18th century Bible commentator, puts it well. Portions on earth are perishing things, but God is portion forever. Portions on earth are perishing things, but God is portion forever. So the author of Lamentations in the midst of his and his people's troubles makes this statement. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will trust in him. The word therefore indicates that there is something about the Lord, the covenant-keeping God, that makes having him as our portion infinitely superior to trusting in other things. We've considered what we mean by having God as our portion, and now we'll go on then to consider what God is like and why, therefore, it's in our best interests to have him as our portion. So what kind of portion is the Lord? The first thing to say is that God can be known. He has revealed his character in the ways related to his creation. This is recorded for us in the scriptures. And it's clear from this passage in Lamentations that the author was acquainted with who God was, what he was like. The sorrow that he feels is very real and present. And if you read Lamentations from the beginning, you can be in no doubt about that. But quite suddenly in chapter 3 and verse 21, there's a shift. But this I call to mind, he says, and therefore I have hope. The fact that what he is about to state was something that was called to his mind shows that it was already in his mind. It wasn't a new discovery, but something old and well-remembered that came back to him in his time of sorrow. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now, I've not had the opportunity to study Hebrew, the original language of the Old Testament, but there is one word that I do know. And I guess some of you may have heard of this word before too. The word is hesed in my English accent. And in fact, I can remember my former minister speak of this word about 14 years ago. Even if you forget most of what I have said this morning, I hope that some of you might look back in 14 years' time and remember that we talked about Hesed, the covenant love of the Lord. And this is a very important term, a key term in the theological framework of the Old Testament. And to understand the Old Testament is to have a grasp of this, this idea that's bound up in the word hesed. It's certainly part of the mix for that base coat that I talked about earlier. There's no direct English equivalent uh, to that word, but phrases steadfast love, as used by our author, or covenant love, loving kindness, constant love, these words have all been used by translators to try and get the idea across. And the idea is one of a relationship between two parties characterized 
by goodwill and mutual concern. Embedded in the meaning of the word are the traits of loyalty and devotion. And although in our author's time and place, Israel had been disloyal, undevoted, and lacking in concern for their God, which had resulted in its calamity, nevertheless, the author understood enough of God's character to know that he remained faithful to his covenant. He remained loyal. He remained devoted. The kind of love Hesed that he had for his people was not a one-time feeling, but represented an enduring bond of fidelity. Sure, Israel has completely messed up, and the result of their disregard for the covenant on their part was their current exile and subjugation to a pagan nation in the form of the Babylonian Empire. But our author refuses to give up hope in the one who he knows is faithful. He writes, his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. How much is contained in those few words? How much comfort has been drawn from their reality over the centuries by the people of God? Their words which inspired uh, the hymn writer to write that hymn that we know great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. I once heard a minister friend observe that a good indication of how a person will act in the future is how they have acted in the past. To a large extent, I think that's a true observation. Although human beings are changeable and prone to being consistent, people can change for better or for worse. But God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His character does not change. The steadfast love Hesed, that the author speaks of, never ceases. His mercies, they're new every morning. New, not in the sense of being different, but new in the sense of being constant. The author recognizes a prevailing attitude in the Lord, an attitude that he's not only learnt about uh, through the history of his people, but through personal experience. His personal experience is reinforced by his knowledge of the history of his people, of how God had demonstrated his faithfulness to them in spite of their faithlessness so many times before. Notice that when he goes on to say, the Lord is my portion, he adds, says my soul. It's more than just a general statement. It's his personal conviction born out of personal experience. It's something that goes to his very core and it affects him at a deep level and it affects the way he interprets his and his people's situation. It is, uh, if you like, part of the base coat that underlies his world and life view. 
This then is the character of the God of whom our author speaks and who is his, is his portion. He's a God of hesed, steadfast love, covenant love. He's a faithful God whose constancy extends to showing mercy to his people, even though at the point at which our author is recalling these things, God's people are in dire straits. This is the consolation for his sorrow. This is what gives him hope for the future. This is what causes him, even in the midst of trouble, not to let himself go into a sea of despair. And yet, what was real, uh, what was a real but a, a, a distant hope is for us, if we count ourselves children of God, much clearer because of the fulfillment of God's covenant promise in the person of Jesus Christ. The coming of the Saviour into the world, his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and his being seated now at the Father's right hand as our friend, as our advocate, is the ultimate display of God's loving kindness and mercy towards his people. When we say to ourselves, and if we're followers of Jesus, we, we can say this, the Lord is my portion. What is it that we're saying? That God revealed to us in his beloved son is sufficient for our every need in life. The Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, Christians in Rome, in Romans chapter 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The covenant love of the Lord is fully revealed in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. To have the Lord as one's portion in the days of lamentations was to look forward to a time of restoration and redemption. Now that time has come. And to have the Lord as our portion is to have life in Christ, the great redeemer of his people. As we reflect on these words found in the book of Lamentations, I would like us to bear in mind what I said at the beginning about the necessity for us to lay a base coat of ideas, of truths, in order to live a God-honoring life in full vibrancy. And I would argue that one of the great ideas presented to us in the word of God and which should form part of that spiritual base coat is this notion of God being his people's portion, that he alone is the one in whom they find their ultimate hope and happiness. And so the question must be asked, do we have God as our portion or are we in reality looking to other things to satisfy what only God in his perfect righteousness can satisfy. Are our hearts at rest or are they restless? In your own circumstances or as you consider the tumultuous circumstances of our world, 
Are you tempted to despair? Or do you, like the author of Lamentations, recall to mind the reality of God's unchanging faithfulness and love? <coughs> when it comes to the application of this passage, I suppose a part of it would be to simply reflect on the idea of the Lord being a portion for his people and to ask yourself the question, do I have the Lord for my portion? Over time, of course, painted walls become duller than they once were. They become faded and the dust and dirt in the air gradually uh, gives it a slightly tired look. People and objects rub up um, against areas of wall, leaving their scratches and friction marks. We can see that already in this relatively new building. Sometimes we see photographs and remember how vibrant and fresh a newly painted room once looked and are prompted to think that perhaps it's time for a fresh paint job. Perhaps some of us need to strip back the dirt and the dust, those things which in this world so easily take our minds and hearts away from the Lord and lead us to put our hope in perishing earthly portions. Perhaps some of us need to put our trust in the Lord for the first time. And if that's you, please come and speak to us afterwards. If anyone would like to learn more about what it is to put your trust in Jesus, or would like to pray, or would like to discuss anything uh, that we've been talking about this morning, um, I will be in the small cafe after the service, so please do come and talk if you want to. Perhaps some of us uh, need to resolve, like the author of Lamentations, to consider our circumstances in uh, the light of what is known about the Lord God. Let us learn from the thought pattern of our author. His inward-looking frame of mind changes and starts to be orientated away from himself and towards the Lord, away from himself and towards the Lord. Having these key ideas revealed in scripture present in our consciousness helps not only to remain sane in what often seems to be an insane world, but also to keep us moving forward on the journey of grace, growing into ever closer likeness to Christ. And not least among these great ideas is expressed in these five words, the Lord is my portion. Do you own these five words? Have you come to a place where you can say with quiet confidence, the Lord is my portion? These words are extremely valuable the one who trusts in God. They speak of comfort, of safety, of hope. They're challenging to those who do not have the Lord as their portion, whose portion is in those things which ultimately are passing away. If not God, what is your portion in life? Can it really satisfy? John Newton, the vicar of St. Mary Woolnoth Church in the city of London. He was there in the, the later 18th and the early 19th centuries, once did not have the Lord as his portion, but then he came to know the Lord Jesus Christ and expressed uh, 
this newfound knowledge, this newfound hope uh, in the lines of his well-known hymn. The Lord has promised good to me, his word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Please remember this verse of scripture for the rest of your life. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful idea, this truth in your word. Lord, we thank you that if we're trusting in you, then you are our portion, you are our lot in life, and we can look to you for our every need. We can be truly satisfied in you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to cleave to you as our portion, and that because of this, that we would have hope. We ask these things in the name of Christ, our Saviour and Redeemer. Amen.